we're, we're exploring here really in our three sessions together, and I, some of you were not here for the other two sessions. I don't know where you were, not cool. This is a three-part series, all right? And all of the previous concepts have something to do with what we're going to talk about now. So if you feel like you're shortchanged in the next few minutes that we're going to spend together, it's your fault, not mine, okay? Now, we're talking about the incarnation of Christ last evening and the implications for the incarnation to religious liberty. And then we, this morning, talked about the teachings of Christ, the life and teachings of Christ, and the implications embedded within the teachings of Jesus, his theology and how he self-identified as the Messiah, and the implications for religious liberty. And now we're going to explore the, without question, the most definitive event in all of universal history, and that is the cross of Christ. Now, before we dive right in to the implications of Calvary for religious liberty, um, I was thinking this morning about the fact that Albert Einstein, in the last years of his life, after he had made the monumental discovery of special relativity, he decided, you know, what am I going to conquer next? What do I want to do with, with my massive frontal lobe? I mean, he probably didn't think about it like that, but he thought, you know, I've got, I've got something going on upstairs. What am I going to apply my mind to? And so he spent the remainder of his life pursuing a toe, T-O-E, a theory of everything. He really wanted to crack the riddle of the universe. He wanted to, you know, somehow peel back the layers of reality, and in his case, physics, and comprehend, you know, what, what is the thing that's going on at the foundation or at the core of reality? I, I'd like to discover a theory of everything. He also referred to this as uh, a master equation. I mean, what is the formula that defines physical reality? A master equation. Now, I'm not going to share with you this morning in this little introduction anything regarding the physical reality that surrounds us and that we are actually ourselves embedded within as material creatures. I am going to suggest to you, however, that there is something that precedes physics, and that is the psychology of God, the mind of God, the emotions of God, from which physical reality emerged. You could say with theological justice that creation, what we are and everything that surrounds us, that creation is God's love actualized in material form. God's thinking and feeling a certain way, and here we are. We literally exist because, and precisely because, God is love. We emerged out of the womb of a deep and beautiful other-centeredness. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that what we're about to discover in the person of Christ is that the world in which we live, the universe in which we live, that our entire universe, from the subatomic level to the cosmic level, is an act of love in motion 
that has suffered an interruption, that is in the process of being rectified. And Christ is that rectification of this anti-love impulse that has overtaken the world. Now, when Jesus came into the world in his incarnation, we are witnessing God in true form to God's character. So, I don't believe that the condescension, the humility, the, the going down motion that we witness in Christ, I don't think that God in the incarnation is breaking rank with his identity. Do you hear what I'm saying? I think that in the incarnation, God is simply continuing in logical trajectory to be who he is and always was. So he came down. I mean, he literally is in full chase after you and me. We're under pursuit. God literally loves you and me more than his own existence, as we're about to discover, and would rather die for eternity than live without you. Now, the moment you look in to the eyes of God and realize that that's who we're dealing with, you're either going to find it deeply uncomfortable and out of sync with your identity and break ranks in rebellion with it, or you're going to fall head over heels in love with the most beautiful person in the universe. Those are the options open to us. Now, having come into the world, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount and in his kingdom teachings, as we discovered this morning, Jesus set in motion not merely a kind of forensic and legal process by which we could have post-mortem salvation. Now, I believe in post-mortem salvation. The Seventh-day Adventist version of it, where there is a period of sleep and then a resurrection, praise God. So I believe in that post-mortem part of the gospel. But the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount and his kingdom teachings were teachings about the nature of reality, specifically social dynamics and political dynamics. Jesus was a political insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary of the most dramatic and otherworldly kind. So much so that he repeatedly said, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. Nothing like anything you've ever witnessed. You, you can't find its parallel in this world. So Jesus, finally having been incarnate, having taught and given us in the Sermon on the Mount his kingdom teachings, the ethics of his kingdom in those teachings, Jesus finds himself standing before a political ruler. And as Pilate grills him with questions, Pilate is tempting him to assert liberty from his eventual demise by pulling rank. The idea is, you know, and it's comical to Pilate, 
because this is just a Jewish, a Hebrew peasant. So, so with, with a, a little bit of a grin of, of, of unbelief, Pilate is saying, so, so you're a king, huh? Well, do what kings do. Do what kings do. Save yourself. Flex. Show us who you are. Be a king in the form that all kings are kings. You've got some followers. I've heard that the whole countryside comes out to hear you teach. Amass an army. And as Jesus stands before this political leader in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered Pilate and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. This is astounding. Nothing like this has ever been articulated by a power figure in history. Jesus is, in fact, the most powerful person in the universe. He can literally do anything he wants and be accountable to nobody. And it is within the scope of his power to take Pilate up on his offer, to throw some political and military blows, to assert himself, take the throne from Pilate and everybody else in the world. I mean, he really could. And he simply chose not to. Having said this to Pilate, what did he do? Jesus then proceeded to refuse to exercise his superior power, which he was obviously having access to, and voluntarily go to the cross. He said earlier when the disciples were all befuddled about this, trying to protect him and all, he said, listen, listen, let me tell you what's going on here. This is John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me. <laughs> I lay it down freely of myself. This is a voluntary act just so you know, Peter, and you sons of thunder who want to defend me with violence. I'm doing this, it's not being done to me in an ultimate sense. And yet it is being done to him because human beings are acting out the deeply embedded psychological and emotional malice in their hearts toward any form of power that is not power-mongering. And so Jesus submits to the process of following his kingdom ethics through to their logical conclusion. Now, you're no doubt familiar with Friedrich Nietzsche, probably the most famous philosopher, atheist in history. Nietzsche is the guy who, who coined the term that is on bumper stickers all out where I live in Oregon, God is dead. But he was aiming for something a little bit more significant 
in his own context than a mere atheism in the sense that we understand it presently. He was saying, in essence, that religion in its misrepresentation of the character of God has killed all desire for God. So Nietzsche perused all the religions and philosophies of the world, much like, as we discovered last night, Joseph Campbell did in Hero with a Thousand Faces. And Nietzsche reports to us that he sees just the same, the same, the same, the same, the same everywhere. And then he examines this singular personage in history, this towering figure named Jesus Christ. In a moment of philosophical deduction that is a level of honesty that is defied by his atheism, this is how Nietzsche describes what he sees in Jesus. Quote, Modern men hardened as they are to all Christian terminology. He sees that the world in the West is on a fast track to atheism and secularism. Modern men, hardened as they are to all Christian terminology, no longer appreciate the horrible extravagance the horrible extravagance which, for all ancient taste, lay in the paradox of the formula, God on a cross. He's saying if we can take our modern minds and just, and just go back into the ancient value system where power alone is the currency of nations, if we can just think about how they were thinking when Jesus showed up, he's saying we would realize that, that, that this, this, what he calls this paradoxical formula, this, this, this apparently contradiction in terms, God on a cross, he calls it a horrible extravagance. He goes on and he says, never before, before the Christ event, never before had there been anywhere such an audacious inversion of reality, that is. Nobody ever flipped reality on its head like this Jesus fella. There's never been such an audacious inversion. He turned everything upside down and inside out. Never, Nietzsche goes on to say, never anything so terrifying, so challenging, and so challengeable as this formula. God on a cross. It, this formula... The cross of Calvary, listen now, the cross of Calvary promised to the world, this is Nietzsche, a transvaluation of all ancient values. In other words, Nietzsche is saying that in the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus effectively set in motion a whole new kind of equation 
a formula for what it looks like to be human beings. And he's saying, there's nothing like this anywhere. No philosophy, no religion. This cat's well-read. And he is high on intellectual and academic pursuit. He knows what he's talking about, and he's reporting to us. Nietzsche, the philosopher, he's saying, let me just tell you, there's nobody in history doing anything like what we see in Jesus. Jesus is completely other and so the Apostle Paul actually was thinking long before Nietzsche exactly like this about Jesus. In some of the most amazing writing ever, ever, ever produced, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul launches into this amazing reframing of reality through the prism that is Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, if you've got a Bible, look at this. This is going to blow your mind. The Apostle Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are in the process of being saved. It is the power of God. Now, Paul is nowhere in his 1st and 2nd Corinthians treatise on the cross saying anything about post-mortem, go to heaven when you die or after the resurrection kind of salvation. He's saying that the cross of Calvary reframes power dynamics. He's saying that in fact, what we see taking place at the cross of Calvary is what appears to be foolishness to the human mind upon first consideration, but, but to those who are in the process of really thinking it through and being saved on, a, on an ideological level. I mean, I want to be saved for eternity as do you. I mean, just physically, the person that I am physically, you know, I want to go to heaven and have eternal life, but I want, I want to be saved on an ideological level, don't you? I want to be saved on a theological level. I want to be saved on a psychological and emotional and social level. I want God to get into the fabric of my being and the way I process reality, more specifically, the way I process relationships and utterly, completely change my value system. And Paul is saying that the cross, yes, postmortem salvation, but he's saying, listen, at the cross, we are witnessing the power of God. Now, this for Paul is an incredible realization because there's nothing about Calvary that looks powerful. This is, this is what defeat looks like, not victory. He is crucified. He is torn head to toe. He is humiliated. He is defeated by all appearance. Paul looks at Jesus torn and bloody hanging on a cross and he says, that's powerful. That's the power of God right there. The cross is the power of God. Well, what kind of power? Well, we understand power. 
We, we know, those of us who have read the Bible much, in the Bible there's something called, we could call miraculous power. That's where God suspends the laws of nature to do things that otherwise would not occur. He intervenes in the world of physics and, you know, taps the Red Sea with Moses' staff and the water stands up defying the law of gravity and the people walk through on dry land. That's miraculous power. God will never use miraculous power to get into your head, however, and alter your course of existence. And then there's what we might call authoritative power. The power of sheer sovereignty and majesty. I mean, come on, God is powerful in that sense, right? He can make mountains tremble and say, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And the people are like, exactly, we'll do exactly what you say. Just don't talk to us anymore. We'll obey you without intimacy. We don't want to know you, but we'll do what you say. We're, we're, we're open to a slave-master relationship, but we're not feeling the love. So there's authority but that's not what's happening here. Paul says that the cross is the power of God in a completely different sense. The cross is the power of God in that love and voluntary chosen relationship is more powerful than coercion. So he goes on, and this is just mind-blowing. He says in verse 19, For it is written... He just said that the cross is the power of God. That's verse 18. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The cross of Calvary, check this out. Paul says that the cross of Calvary was an act of destruction on God's part. It looks to me like he's being destroyed. From all appearances, he's the one that's defeated. But as Jesus hangs on the cross, there is a kind of divine wink and nod. As everything about the human situation begins to move in reverse. When Jesus died on the cross and then was resurrected, everything in the world began to get younger and younger and younger with innocence and beauty again. And that's where we're headed. We're all growing old physically and by the gospel growing young psychologically and emotionally and relationally. When Jesus died on the cross, he set in motion a destructive force against force. And the destructive force against force is love. And Paul goes so far as to say in this text that when Jesus died on the cross, he set in motion a process by which the understanding of the world is being brought to nothing. And then in verses 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, he said, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God. There it is again. The cross of Calvary is about power dynamics. The power of God. But to the Jews and to the Greeks, it's a stumbling block. The word here is scandalon. 
from which we get the English equivalent scandal. And we have kind of narrowed the word scandal to salacious sexual affairs. But in the ancient Greek, a scandal was basically the overturning of one political regime in favor of another. In other words, everybody is marching lockstep with the Roman Empire. Everybody's following the leader. And scandalong is when there's a stone in the way and you trip over it. And you have to pause and rethink your direction. And at that point, Jesus is saying, as long as you're tripping over this kind of power, repent. Metanoia, turn around and go the other way. Because that's no way to be human. So scandalon, Jesus is the stumbling block. He's the stone. He's the rock of offense that is right smack dab in the middle of the path of coercive and violent force. And he's setting before us a whole new regime. So the cross really, according to Paul, constitutes the ultimate scandal of human power dynamics and politics. Then he goes on in chapter 2, don't miss this, in verse 1, and he says, for I determined, in the light of what I've just described to you, Paul says, that the cross is true power. I've determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I got my cord on the guitar, and that's the song I'm playing. I am not going to say anything else to you unless it is grounded in the crucified Christ. He goes on and he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, we speak wisdom among the mature. Not the physically mature, but the intellectually mature. Those, those who are prepared by the blows of life to finally sit up and take notice and say, wait a minute, there's got to be a different way. We speak the wisdom of God to the mature, Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the rulers of this world who are coming to nothing. Paul is literally saying, nobody, and I mean nobody, who's in position of power is predisposed to comprehend what's going on in Jesus. Because when you comprehend what's going in, on in Christ, your power is threatened and you have to consider a new way of relating. So Paul goes on and he says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden, this is verse 7, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for your glory. It's hidden wisdom not in the sense that God has hidden it, it's hidden wisdom in that it's foreign to the way we think. It takes a paradigm shift. And the cross of Calvary is a bloody, brutal, visceral, paradigm-shifting event for those who will take it in and look beyond, oh yeah, he died, now I get to go to heaven. Look a little longer. Look a little deeper. And you'll see love and selfishness standing face to face in mortal combat and you'll see love gaining the victory. You'll see a whole new political regime in Christ. The cross 
was, according to the Apostle Paul, the most unexpected, surprising, and counterintuitive event in history. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody wanted it to come. It came nevertheless. The voluntary death of Christ was shock therapy for a world addicted to violence. The most powerful person in the universe stepped onto the stage of human history with all the power of the universe at his disposal. If anybody could coerce his way through, this was the guy. And he simply chose not to. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 goes a step further than the 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 text to help us wrap our understanding around what actually happened at Calvary. And he does it like this. He says, hey, let this mind, this disposition, this character, this way of being, let this mind be in you that we see on display in Christ Jesus. Well, what is that mind, Paul? Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it something to be grasped, to be equal with God. He was equal with God, but he held that position with an open hand, if you can imagine. He didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped, check this out, but made himself of no reputation, the text says in the New King James Version. The NIV says, made himself nothing, that's a little better. And the ESV, a little closer to the Greek, says, emptied himself. The Greek word for no reputation, for made himself nothing, emptied himself, is kenosis. Kenosis literally is just a word that means that there's some kind of content in some kind of receptacle and it's dumped out. And so Jesus comes into the world and he has some kind of, some kind of naturally inherited content. I mean, he's God. He's full of divine content, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. And he undergoes a voluntary process of kenosis, of self-emptying. He, he, he lays all of his divine prerogatives on the line. And he simply chooses not to exercise his native powers as God, but rather chooses another route, another access into human hearts. He goes to the cross. He dies a self-giving love on our behalf. And being found in appearance as a man, Paul says, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So then, the next word that Paul uses, therefore, because of this self-emptying, because he voluntarily laid his life down. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus went all the way down and it is precisely because that is in his character to do that that 
He is therefore highly exalted. Listen, I go to Australia every year, do a lot of ministry there. One of the funniest things you encounter in Australia, they call it down under. I mean, if you pan out far enough in the cosmos from planet Earth, there is no top or bottom. But when you're real close to it, we up here, we think we're on the top of the world and they're on the bottom, so they have mugs and t-shirts and hats that say, welcome to the top of the world. It's a cosmological humor where they're essentially saying, who's to say you're on the top and we're on the bottom? We're not on the bottom any more than you're on the top. Welcome to the top of the world. Coming to Jesus is like traveling so far south, so far down, that you end up at the top in a spherical universe of other-centered love. Because in Christ we see that going down is what up looks like. Jesus, when he was resurrected and exalted, was resurrected and exalted as a human being. Jesus didn't become incarnate in our nature, go into the grave and then come up in the resurrection out of the grave, having left his humanity there and now reassumed his divine nature apart from human nature. No, the marriage of the two came forth from the grave. So that when Paul says that he was exalted to the throne of the universe, listen, listen, Paul's point throughout his writings and specifically in this passage is that a second Adam, a new man, a new representative head of the human race occupies the throne of the universe waiting for our arrival to occupy the throne with him. God is the kind of God in the Hebrew narrative, unlike any pagan narrative, philosophy, religion down through history. The God of the Hebrew scriptures is utterly and completely unique in history because the God of the Hebrew narrative is the kind of God who, check this out, when you submit and give all power over to him, he hands it back to you. If there's anything that the God of the universe doesn't want, it's control. God is only interested in the free will, volitional liberty, and dignity of us as creatures who are actuated by responsible self-governance. A human being occupies the throne of the universe right now. And that throne will be relocated after the second coming to planet Earth. And Jesus promises that we, fellow human beings, whom he is not ashamed to call brethren, will inhabit the throne with him. Because the only one who is legitimately worthy of occupying the throne is the one who died on the cross to show us what real power looks like. And real power looks like love. The cross of Calvary is the definitive event of history precisely because the cross of Calvary reframes power dynamics. It shows us what it looks like to live in a constant state of other-centered deferring for the flourishing of the whole. And that's what eternity future is going to look like. So let's just pause now at this juncture of our message and ask a very simple question. By whom and for what reason was Jesus crucified? 
Well, we know the answer because the narrative tells us that Jesus was crucified by a union of church and state. Or you could say it this way. Jesus was crucified by a convenient, self-preserving conspiracy between political powers and religious powers. They came together and Jesus was crucified in order for that self-preserving system to not be put to shame by a different way of ruling. Or you could say it this way, going a step deeper into the theological aspect of the whole picture. Jesus was crucified by a theology of appeasement and coercion. Jesus was crucified by people who had a picture of God that would justify violence in the name of God. So the cross shows us, among other things, that the most spiritually and morally lethal cocktail in human history is the union of church and state. When state powers, when political individuals and religious individuals, when people who are holding the mantle of power and people who are holding Bibles in their hands come together, the end of the world is at hand. So fast forward to the final events of human history. For those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists, this will be extremely meaningful to you because you're no doubt at least somewhat literate in Seventh-day Adventist eschatology. If you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, then you may find this a little bit challenging at first glance, but the principles bear out and harmonize with what we've been describing as the cross of Christ. Because I'm going to suggest to you that the cross of Calvary, listen now, this is the payoff right now. The cross of Calvary is the historic template for the eschaton, for final events, for the final crisis of human history. Precisely what happened then and there will happen here and soon. The cross of Calvary reveals to us what it looks like when church and state unite for purposes of preserving power at the expense of liberty. So that when Peter, one of his own disciples, tried to come and defend him with violence, you remember the episode in Matthew chapter 26 where Peter stepped forward. Listen, Peter was willing to die for Jesus. Don't call him a coward. He just wasn't willing to change his messianic paradigm for Jesus. He was willing to die for Jesus. He just wasn't willing to live that way for Jesus. He wasn't willing to have an apparently weak Messiah. He wanted to take the Romans down. I'll die for that. He was a political conservative who was willing to wield the sword to maintain political ascendancy over the prevailing powers. So he unsheathed his sword. He performed an act of violence. And in Matthew 26, 52, Jesus said, put your sword away, your implement of violence. Put your sword in its place. For all, now these are the words, for all who take the sword will 
perish by the sword. This is the biblical basis for what Walter Wink, last evening we quoted this, what Walter Wink called the myth of redemptive violence, the idea that might makes right, that you can conquer evil with force. Jesus said, listen, listen, Peter, that's not what we're doing because with every blow you throw, a blow's coming back. It stops with me in a monumental act of forgiveness. So Jesus says, put your sword away. Anyone who kills with the sword will die by the sword. Don't miss this part. Don't miss this part. I'm only asking for a couple more minutes of your time. If, if you didn't catch anything else I said, catch this. That's Matthew 26. Jesus says, he who takes the sword or who lives out the misconception of God's character in violent form will die by the same means. That's Matthew 26. The Apostle John, in Revelation 13, ring a bell, fellow Adventists? In Revelation 13, the eschatological religious liberty passage that describes the upcoming final events of human history, the enforcement of the mark of the beast. Revelation 13, John grabs that language from Jesus in verses 9 and 10 to describe the final events of human history that will go down. And he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity will go into captivity, and he who kills with the sword must be killed by the sword. And then he says this, but here is the patient endurance and faith of the saints. In his own context, what John is telling us is that those only who have sworn off of violence and coercion in the name of God in patient endurance with violence coming their direction and not handing it back, those only with patient endurance and the faith of Jesus that led him to the cross will make it through the final events of human history with their characters and their conscience intact. Jesus, in John chapter 16, this is the last passage. Jesus, in John 16, gives us an eschatological passage. We're familiar with Matthew 24 and the signs of the end time. We're familiar with Luke and its final events treatise, right? But almost never do we consider that the Apostle John actually had his own Matthew 24 treatment. This is how he frames the end time. This is, for me, the definitive eschatological passage. John 16, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says this. The time is coming when those who kill you will imagine that in so doing, they are serving God. And these things, Jesus says, they will do to you because they do not know my Father or me. Jesus is literally saying that final events will play out as a horrific misconception of the character of God being acted out in persecution and violence against others. 
It is the coercive appeasement paradigm of the character of God that allows human beings to justify violence toward one another. And Jesus says, the day is coming when those who kill you will think they're serving God. These are religious folks. They think they're serving God in their acts of violence. So think about it like this. We live in a political climate right now, and always have, I mean, my whole life. Not a lot has changed. It seems like the volume is being turned up. It's intensifying in some ways, and we can expect it to intensify more and more. But I'll share with you from a principle level that for all the liberals and conservatives have against one another. Now, that's a lot. Let's just feel that for a minute. Okay, so for all the liberals and conservatives have against one another, they tend to have one thing in agreement, in common. They hate each other. And it is precisely that spirit that actuated the conservatives and liberals, the Sadducees and Pharisees, to find common ground against perfect balance, I suppose, in Christ, the perfect, the perfect political equilibrium. <laughs> that's, that's Jesus. The Pharisees were like, no, he's not conservative enough. And the Sadducees were like, well, no, he's not liberal enough. So conservatism liberals ganged up on God and crucified him. Now, I say tend to hate one another because I don't believe for a moment that everybody on the right hates everybody on the left or that everybody on the left hates everybody on the right. There are godly good people on both ends of the spectrum who are trying to tune in to higher principles. But as a general orientation for my fellow Seventh-day Adventists, I'll suggest this to you in closing that before the mark of the beast is a wrong day of worship, it's a wrong governing principle. And before the seal of God is the right day of worship, it is a governing principle. There is character that lies behind so it's not going to be simply a final eschaton, a final crisis in which those who have enough grit and willpower to just keep on keeping the right day. No, there are all kinds of Sabbath keepers who are Sunday keepers theologically. And there are all kinds of Sunday keepers who are Sabbath keepers theologically. And there's going to be, this is a really technical theological term, so don't get lost on it, there's going to be a big switcheroo and the big switcheroo that's coming is going to be when everybody who has taken on board the beautiful love of God in Christ will naturally gravitate toward political and social paradigms that are for the flourishing and best good of all. And when persecution raises its ugly head, people who haven't so much as known the name of Jesus and that you and I would rule out and say they're just so far that way or that way that they're... No. Everybody who believes that God is love, whether they've thought it through theologically or not, but they know in the bedrock of their soul 
that all coercion must ultimately be wrong. And that the only thing worth dying for is non-coercive love. Thanks for your time this morning.